0: Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we parse this week's tech and IT pronouncements. Today's show, we're going to examine a Cisco acquisition, dig into some Broadcom changes at VMware, mull over a 2024 IT spending forecast, and more. We don't have any ads today, but uh, we do ask you to stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation on improving application performance and user experience. We talk with Palo Alto Networks about an interesting approach they're taking to accelerate dynamic content. It's kind of a new twist on TCP optimization and WAN acceleration. It's available in Palo Alto Networks Prisma SASE service, so stick around if you're curious.
1: Conversation. It's really hard to explain um, how you can do application acceleration by um, smoothing out the packet, the application flows, the packet flows, and uh, it's and it's difficult to explain because it's still a very early product for Palo. So
0: you will need some patience, but stick with it. It's worth doing, I think. Yeah, for a fifteen-minute conversation, I think it's interesting. Mm. Uh, And just to mention that, uh, you know, we love to hear from you on the FU, the follow-up, but if you want more direct engagement, you can join our Slack channel. That's at packapushers.net slash Slack. It's an active community of network engineers who are sharing information, swapping memes, and generally having a good time. Uh, So if you're interested, go check it out and join us. Uh, Speaking of FUs, we do have a couple. uh, First, you know, the last couple of episodes went pretty long, uh, and we apologized. A listener wrote in to say... To butcher the words of some wise wizard, an episode of The Network Break never runs too long nor too short. It always runs for exactly as long as it needs to be. Uh, I appreciate that sentiment and the Lord <laughs> of the Rings reference. <laughs> uh, but we do promise to try to move faster this week.
1: <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. Yeah. That's uh, good. That's yep. good. Uh, a shout out to the person who wrote in asking me for your investment advice, saying if <laughs> he was investing, I, um, I'll get back to you directly. Uh, but I'm not sure that I'm the right person to be asking for investment advice because I don't, uh, I don't. I just basically recommend that you invest in a um, whole of market funds, so exchange traded funds or investment funds from various portfolios and stuff like that. I found for me wasting time picking shares was just way too difficult and and made a very complicated lifestyle, so I didn't.
0: Right. Yes, mm. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to open that door to other people asking for investment advice personally. But, uh,
1: then uh, you end up with, you know, like if you if you give investment advice, you become liable, and you have to be an investment <laughs> advisor or financial advisor. And then I live in the UK. Blah blah blah. So, the, the, and also, as somebody who's performing analysis, you don't want to own shares in the stocks that you're covering. So, because sure. then you can be accused of bias or promoting shares and stuff like that. Now, I don't own any shares in any of the stocks. You know, or any of the companies in the tech companies at all for this reason. So I'm not the right person to ask. You know, the business that we run could be seen as a conflict of interest. We did never ever wanted to risk that. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, there was also uh, some other feedback related to the HPE Aruba networking. Someone there yes. is suggesting that there were some governments believe there's some foreign state interference going on, and maybe their governments won't be using HP Arubas or Juniper's kit. It's a little unclear. The comments are sort of a thing. Um, but he's saying that the he believes that there's some sort of stuff going on that are inside of government security that they think there's a foreign state inf- interference there. I've never oh. heard anything, so I, thanks for the feedback, but I'm not sure I've seen any evidence to suggest that. Uh, and the final piece was somebody who was talking to us and saying we said the value of Juniper's Wi-Fi portfolio is missed. They agree AI is transformative but he believe, he says that MIST is using custom hardware um, that the Aruba APs do not possess. Um, and that's right. So MIST is using custom features of the chipset that is inside of the APs to get more detailed telemetry to be able to feed into its system so it's got better data. That doesn't mean that you can't put MIST over other people's APIs if they chose to, it doesn't make sense. Like, it's obviously better from Juniper's point of view to sell new APs and get the revenue, the hardware and the support contract revenue and the software on the devices and all that sort of stuff. Um, but if you're missing a certain amount of telemetry, but you run them over, you put missed over the Ruby APs, you can just say, this is we're lacking this telemetry and so forth. In the same way that you run Juniper Abstra over Sonic or Cisco or whatever, like, we've talked to Juniper Abstra plenty of times and they talk about um, ripping out ACI and putting Abstra in on one weekend. Because all they have to do is replace the software. They don't have to replace uh-huh. the hardware they use to keep the Cisco switches in place and so forth. So, you know, I see it as that. Now, maybe you lose something. Okay, maybe you do. But is that acceptable? I don't know. But if there's enough driver for it to say we just have to have one of these and maybe customers don't want to threat, I think it's very confusing. It's too early to tell as well. True. It's trying to pick a winner at this point without all the information is very, very difficult.
0: Yeah, I think his main point was that he—I guess he—we gave him the impression that we were saying, you know, uh, Juniper is essentially just going to layer Mist uh, on top of Aruba or Aruba APs, and you, he says you, you just won't get the same operational experience because uh, uh, Mist is using custom hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and I just want to clarify, I. I do think AI was a primary driver for the acquisition, but also I want to clarify that one of the concerns I have about the acquisition is that yes, there's no magic button to mystify the Aruba portfolio. That's going to take some significant effort if it even happens. Uh, I've had some other conversations with industry uh, viewers uh, Mm -hmm. since then, and it seems to me that maybe the strategy for the time being is simply just they're going to offer two Wi-Fi products for different use cases. So Mm -hmm. you know, if if an organization doesn't want a cloud-based Wi-LAN, then Aruba will be the option, Uh, and if you want that AI and and cloud-based capability, then you go with Mist um, and they'll just have Mm -hmm. one of each in the portfolio.
1: And another way would be to move Aruba into the mid-market and say that Mist is our premium product. Mist APs, Mist Campus, Mist Branch, Mist SD-WAN is our premium product and that's our enterprise. And um, Aruba heads in a different direction down towards the more Meraki-like solution, which is target on the mid-market, gets a cloud-based backend, which they've already started with, of course, um, and so on and so forth. But I would think that's that's months away, maybe years away before that strategy starts to take shape, and it'll become clear as time goes by. We're just guessing which way it could go, and and you know, based on what we've seen other vendors do in this situation and what is out there working, we can make some educated guesses, but nothing yeah. certain, you know, until the fat lady sings, as they say. As they say, you know yeah, that. So thank you for yeah, the... the fat lady sings. I... By the way, is a reference to opera. And they always yes. say the opera's never over until the fat lady sings, cause at the end of Wagner, the fat lady <laughs> sings the final song. And so, yeah, j- just so that yep.
0: Yeah. Yes, a little cultural history there. <laughs> I'm a savant, uh, okay. a
1: cultural savant, I tell you.
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a regular opera patron you are. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching uh, so, uh, That's more than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Let's get into the news portion of the show. Uh, This is an acquisition story we meant to cover multiple weeks ago, but it kept getting bumped. Uh, This is Cisco picking up the startup Isovalent. It happened in late December. The acquisition price wasn't officially disclosed, uh, but the tech website, the information cited an unnamed source. Uh, claiming that Cisco paid approximately $650 million in cash. Uh, Why the big spend? Isovalent is a commercial version of a couple of open-source projects, including Cilium, uh, which is in turn built around eBPF that lets you run programs in the Linux kernel. without having changed the kernel source code, uh, Cilium is gaining traction in Kubernetes environments because you can get uh, networking, load balancing, encryption, policy enforcement, observability of container-based and microservices environments. It's an alternative to using sidecar proxies in a service mesh, uh, and I think that's the reason folks are so interested interested in uh, isovalent and cilium mm. and EBPF in general.
1: yeah, the the real success of cilium and isovalent as the commercial organization that steers the project. Uh, and this goes back to the the old business model from years ago of. The uh, open source projects with a commercial so that you have open source that you give away, and that becomes a lead generation tool for the commercial, and you have versions yeah. of it, and, and so on. And the challenge always has been around service mesh that's using sidecar proxies is the sheer cost and complexity. For every container you deploy, you have to deploy a sidecar, and that was just expensive and complicated and was very difficult to work through. But it was better than the alternatives of not having any networking at all. Um, And then the Cilium team were able to take the eBPF. The the eBPF project started out of PlumGrid, if you go back far enough, but they were able to, they uh, hired the people around that and then started to use the eBPF as a, conceptually, it's a virtual machine inside of the Linux kernel attached to, that you can run programs in or apps in. And particularly it's been picked up by networking people because the Berkeley packet filter, of course, was... To do with the networking stack and if you can get into the networking stack you can intercept the data flow or the data streams and do stuff yes um, and so when they had the eBPF, you know finally got in there well that means you can now move the proxy function or the or the the networking functions that you were previously doing into the eBPF lvm and now you've got this so much more control, so much more visibility, but you're also using much less resources. The container that has the networking load that's in in that container because it's running in the kernel because of the BPF. So the real success of yes. Isovalent was their ability to get eBPF into the Linux kernel, adopted by the the kernel team, and the idea that they were able to put what is fundamentally it's not a full virtual machine in the way that you normally think of. it's not a a type one, type two hypervisor. It's a very sub, you know, very limited. You have to run it, but that's what it is. And um, so Isovlan sort of has been the leading vendor for container networking for a while. Now, I see this as Cisco finally trying to take on NSX. And so they are now going to have a networking capability that runs on containers, potentially in virtual machines as well. And the isovalent product and using the Cilium project can now get the sort of visibility, the security, Cisco can bring its security tools in and get to the endpoint. Because up till now, Cisco hasn't really managed to get a competitive product against NSX in containers. They've had several different tries. I think from memory, they've had two or three different products where they tried to get into the networking stack and they've done partnerships with various ex, you know, open source projects. And as we always say around here, put a ring on it and that's what they've done. So I that's how I see it. Do you think what do you think? Do you agree?
0: Yeah, definitely, Cisco wants a stake in cloud-native and Kubernetes environments. Uh, Isovalent gives it one that they didn't have before. Um, if microservices is how all well new applications are going to be built, that is a good bet for Cisco. Although, again, like yes, Cisco has a huge market presence and lots of Salesforce, but I'm uh, assuming lots of you know developers and so on aren't going to Cisco for their uh, <laughs> Kubernetes infrastructure, so I don't know quite how they'll rectify that. Um, but I, it does at least position Cisco uh, to get into Kubernetes and cloud-native.
1: Yeah. Now, of course, there's the question large acquisitions tend to fail. This is a 650 million, rumored to be 650 million. This happened at short notice just before Christmas. So it sounds like Cisco did its usual um, seagull takeover. That's where it comes in on a Thursday, drops a bid, um, and says, You've got until Monday to accept it or we're gone. And to do right. it at Christmas time is
0: <laughs> you know, probably. and. It- It's almost ten times the amount of money that Isovalent had raised over two rounding funds, which was sixty-nine million. So I'm sure the investors were like, "Ooh, yeah, let's let's take this deal." (laughs) Yeah, Christmas present, Uh, (laughs) right? So (laughs) something in the stocking. So there's a
1: couple of different angles here. I think this is, I think Cisco will make a success of this. On balance, it has to. It has to round out, um, has to round out its networking capabilities in the container and the virtual machine network. We've talked about. Broadcom and VMware a lot and how that merger. And I know that Cisco does have a competitive position against Broadcom. It's not happy that Broadcom ASICs are successful. It's not happy that the networking is moving away to Broadcom and they're losing revenue, I think. Certainly they're losing growth to competitors using Broadcom ASICs and chipsets and the cloud companies, all that business that Cisco thinks would, you know, used to think was it, you know, belong to it, has now gone. The cloud companies deal direct with Broadcom and Cisco's not in that cloud market that Arista's been able to be at least partially successful in. But so I think this gets Cisco back into the heart of the enterprise. The future is going to be containers and virtualization. and gives them a position against NSX to compete with Broadcom. And, and Nutanix doesn't really have the networking capabilities, as I understand it, compared to that. But it also is multi-cloud networking. Cilium has extended its product into the multi-cloud networking product. And I don't think Cisco's multi-cloud products have been Market leaders to put to this point, and so now with Cilium, they could possibly build a better one than they could actually start to attract more companies to the UCS platform and to its hyper-converged platforms around Nutanix.
0: Yeah, I think a risk includes, you know, Cisco if they decide to play funny licensing games with uh, Isovalent, which is based on Cilium, which is an open source project, and that yeah. Cilium open source project is run by the Linux Foundation. If they go like the IBM route with Red Hat uh, and try to mess around with the licenses uh, that upset the open source community, that could be a potential... Mm. Uh, problem for them. And as we know, Cisco does like to <laughs> try to extract as much revenue out of their acquisitions as possible. So I, we'll see what happens here. But uh, that's, yeah. I think, a potential risk.
1: I do have some concerns about Cisco as custodian of an open source project. I would say that Cisco's history on that's pretty mixed, um, but generally trending towards the negative. It doesn't have the sort of um, internal culture to sustain them for over a long right. period. I'm saying, you know, they can usually sustain them for a couple of years and it, and it goes well, but over after time, The Cisco VPs are very focused on the bottom line and open source projects over time tend to just be seen as a cost and therefore something to be removed or ditched or thrown out or whatever. And I I just hope that, you know, this is a very core, the function of eBPF is that it's in the Linux kernel. I think if Cisco fumbles this, the whole of Cilium disappears because it depends on something called, you know, in eBPF. And uh, we'll see how it goes. But you know, I'm I'm very positive that the whole thing is probably worthwhile. They did pay a big price, you know, 650 million rumored. That sounds about right for a business that was hustling along in the hashicorp direction. In my opinion, you know, could have gone all the way to five billion in my view. Um, reasonably, you know, if it had have stayed out on its own, it would have become the dominant networking for that. And I think that's why Cisco picked it up early. It wants to get in there, and probably it had some funding or it was probably an early investor, so it probably knows exactly what the business is doing because it's on the board. So Cisco has a number of investments in those types of businesses. So
0: yeah. So links in the show notes if you want to read up, we'll move on. Uh, Moving quickly after its VMware acquisition completed, Broadcom is forcing channel partners and cloud service provider partners to reapply. Uh, Starting in February, VMware channel partners will have to reapply to Broadcom to see if they can continue to sell VMware products. Uh, CRN's reporting that Broadcom is going to force on re-signing partners with revenues of half a million to a million dollars or more.
1: So Broadcom's going to make big changes to VMware. It would look at its existing business model and it would say the sales organization is not focused. It's all over the place. Uh, we've got all of these partners in different categories up, down, you know, everything goes through a reseller and that's just all margin that we lose. And so the thing that Broadcom did when it brought on board Symantec and Computer Associates was it took all of those accounts direct. So what it does is build its own sales team and starts managing those directly. So that's what it's doing for or brought for VMware acquisition. It's beefing up its own sales team. Uh, There's a second part to this where we'll talk in a minute about their simplification of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. They're ditching uh, 56 products and simplifying down to just a a lot less SKUs that customers can buy. So it's a lot Mm -hmm. less time, a lot less effort to do the selling. But I was a bit surprised to see them basically saying, we're going to take the top 2,000 customers, I think it is, they're ours and the resellers can have the rest. And even if you're a reseller, you now have to reapply. So what they're going to do is filter out all the resellers and just pick a handful so that the reseller support organization, they can get rid of all that headcount. You know, if you're a reseller and you're relying on VMware for something, and that means VMware has to give you the cost, you know, have a cost on, you know, professional engineering, pre-sales, sales, sales, inside sales, whatever it is to make, give the resellers what they need to sell something. Well, they're going to go. They're going to go. If you're not a profitable reseller for Broadcom, you're out. And and that's what we're seeing here.
0: Yeah, same for those uh, cloud service providers who are uh, reselling VMware cloud services. They too will have to reapply. That's in April of 2024. Um, so it's, again... Broadcom moving very quickly to maximize revenue and squeeze customers as hard as possible. Uh, In a similar vein, VMware, as you mentioned, is putting an end to perpetual licensing to make everything a subscription license. Uh, The announcement states in part, quote, we have simplified the portfolio to a few offers focused on our best technology, VMware Cloud Foundation and VMware vSphere Foundation, as well as optional advanced add-on offers. Mm. Uh, So yes, you can no longer get a perpetual license. It's going to be all subscription models going forward, and there is a streamlining of the portfolio um, but, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. again, part of that effort to maximize profitability.
1: Yeah, it's it's very interesting because this is really disrupting their infrastructure space because resellers have always believed that they have to sell the whole bundle. You have to sell the hardware and the VMware and then the application that goes on top and the firewalls and the networking, and somebody needs to help customers with the integration of it. But I think there's also a realization that the bigger customers do the integration themselves. That is, the reseller... Doesn't generally come in and tell them how to design something. They're just a, you know, they're usually just a, a shop where you go and pick your licenses off the shelf, and you get them delivered. Um, the question is whether it disrupts the reseller business. How 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 much impact does this have to resellers? Do resellers die? You know, do they go out of business because they're no longer getting revenue from the VMware? I spoke to some people about it, and the resellers are probably going to lose three to five percent of their income. It's probably not very profitable, according to what I've been told. So maybe there's no impact, but I think it's going to be much more damaging to them in terms of how customers perceive resellers in the industry. If you're buying your VMware licenses directly from Broadcom, what's the point of a reseller, right? Mm-hmm. And so that yeah. just shift in the value proposition. If it's not your one source for everything, you know, most customers keep one or two resellers around and they, you know, do some price matching between them. That's basically just haggling with yourself. It's pointless. Um, and, you know, they use them to help them you know, work through the the vagaries of licensing or what product to select or getting some free sales support. But, you know, do resellers survive if they're no longer going to be able to do it? So, and does this start a, a, a much larger trend where companies like Cisco and HP and Dell say, eh, we should be going direct as well? If, if if Broadcom's going to go direct, is this something that we should be doing? And if we see that, then I think, you know, that's going to be interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And in regard to the licensing changes, you know, uh, there are some customers, uh, we've seen the industry as a whole moving away from perpetual licensing to subscription licensing. So frankly, it's not a surprise that uh, the new VMware Broadcom would also uh, take this road. I think customers can probably expect uh, price increases as this happens. um, And you lose out on the opportunity to do things like sweat and asset uh, with a perpetual license. So be prepared, buckle up.
1: Yeah, and I think this is going to be much more. um, This is the next item, which is VMware ends all perpetual licensing, uh, which was the announcement that came out just this week. So, the Broadcom ditches cloud service providers because Broadcom's going to deal directly with cloud service providers, you know, and and partners are now being terminated and asked to reapply so that they can reevaluate whether it's worth doing business with them because those programs, you know, it just all creeps in over a period of time. But probably much more structural is that VMware has said no more. Perpetual licenses. We, you buy a subscription. The subscription lasts a maximum for three years, and then you have to come back to it. And so, I think this is really interesting. What I am finding is that I was in various forums, Reddit, and Discords and Slack channels. Um, customers are basically reporting that these renewals, the renewal subscription license renewals, are three hundred to six hundred percent more expensive than what they were paying before. So wow. instead of being offered, you know, but and what. Broadcom seems to have done is they've discontinued fifty-six or fifty-nine products completely, and anything that was down at the bottom end. So if you were just buying, you know, a license to use ESXi for twenty, you know, for ten servers or something like that, now you have to buy VMware Cloud Foundation. So now you get a whole bunch of stuff that you aren't using today, and but you don't get a choice. And another thing that I saw was that they're also doing things like. Um, if you buy the license, you can't buy it for just eight cores. So normally you pay for VMware licensing on the number of cores on each CPU. So a lot of CPUs run eight cores. So what Broadcom has said is it doesn't matter if you only want eight, the minimum purchase is 16. So all of a sudden that just doubles the pricing because you're not buying yep. an eight core license, you're buying a 16. <laughs> so, you know, there's multiple ways to increase the price. One way is to, and they, and Broadcom, to be fair, did say we aren't increasing the price on our on our items, and that does appear. So if you are already a VCF, you know VMware Cloud Foundation, those prices don't increase. But if you're somebody who's a smaller customer who's been keeping the costs out, you'll now find that you're looking at three to six hundred percent increase because you're now being moved up to a product that's way above what you actually need, and being and as they say, taking away the cheap options basically. Um, that's one way to do it. Drew, is that one way to do it? Is that a good way to do it? I don't know, but that's what they do. <laughs>
0: Broadcom is definitely finding out if it's a good way to do it.
1: Yeah. So uh, with the product discontinuations, I think it's probably entirely reasonable. I think VMware had too many products. There was too many ways to buy them. And it's just generated so much overhead to have so much sales effort. Like customers had to try and work out which was what. The reseller had to work out all the different licenses, then they had to go to VMware. The VMware had to have a massive sales team to try and work out what license was relevant to what they were using and which CPU and is it running on this blessed hardware and you know all of this stuff. And it doesn't yeah. make sense, you know, it's time spent having fun haggling in sales calls and having steak dinners or burgers, you know, to work out what is the right license sounds like a good idea, but playing sales Lego is just expensive for the vendor and for the customer. So I'm sort sure. of in favor of this, right? Sales Lego, is, I, I hated playing sales Lego. Which license? Could I cut corners by going here or there? This is what people talk about with Cisco licensing a lot. You know, They complain a lot about the Cisco licensing because it's like, if I put this piece of Lego here, do I get the, you know, and it always ends up right. looking like a half-assed, you know, bits of this. So I uh-huh. would say, you know, you've got to think of Broadcom as a private equity investor. It will rationalize and cut costs without fear or favor. And it wants all the costs cut out of this business so it can maximize the profit Cut it down to the bare minimum, and if it burns a few customers, that's okay because the costs that they cut are worth more than a few customers that get lost. So don't don't start crying in your boots about that. Just suck it up and get on with it. And but you know we are saying here less product managers, less salespeople, less marketing people, less developers, less Q and A, less tech support because you've got less products. Everybody gets the same product. So we're going back to this sort of one size fits all type of infrastructure. And I think fine. I'm okay with this. I think we need to have a reset. We've got to get away from this the the confusion of choice where people think that choice is important. It's not. What you want is a solution. You want to buy it and get to work on it. You don't want to waste 6 months or a year haggling with people about what you've got. I think this is good for good for everybody.
0: Yeah, in general, I'm in favor of uh, licensing simplification and even product portfolio rationalization to get rid of stuff that Mm. people aren't using or don't need that makes sense, streamline the process. And I think Broadcom is probably making a pretty safe gamble that the majority of customers may moan and complain a little bit about price increases going up in the new model and such, but they're not going to change and they will just put up with it and sign the check. Yeah, as I've often said, Drew, people
1: don't care about the price in enterprise IT they just pay right right once you in you know, obviously Cisco's HP Dell are all high priced options off-prem cloud is even more expensive and guess what they're buying the more expensive option over and over and over so if you're going to come at me and say you know Greg we have got to cut costs and so we're going to you know whatever but that's not going to happen and and Broadcom knows it's not not in any significant form. If you are genuinely walking away, if you're, you're spending 10, 30 million on VMware, are you really going to turn that off and walk away just because it went up by 10 million? I think the subscription licensing is going to be interesting. I think um, as time goes by, um, you can Broadcom can just turn up the pricing there, right? And because you, you have to rebuy it every three years- <clears throat>
0: The boiling the frog metaphor. They're yes. going to boil
1: the frog. And I, I, I think the challenge is going to be here is that as, the, as the, the temperature ratchets up, you're going to be in an IBM-type situation. This is where IBM fell down. They ratcheted up the price, on, and then they did financial engineering, and then they cut headcount, and then all of a sudden, the, the line snapped, and IBM ran out of favor. Um, Broadcom seems to have done this pretty well with Symantec. If you've got any questions about whether they can get away with this, just go and look at Symantec, which is a very fine business for Broadcom. Generates handsome profits. You can also look at uh, Brocade's fiber channel business, since they took it over. Not a lot of innovation, not a lot of movement forward, but Broadcom's been running that very, very tightly, very professionally. Nobody's complaining that the product went downhill, but it's not like the product has moved forward. I I like to think of VMware as kind of like a one and done. (laughs) You know, the product's finished, there'll be some polishing there'll be yeah. some stuff to move it into a nice on-prem cloud solution, but it's not going right. to see a, a much innovation going forward. Not at all. Not at
0: all. Yeah, and if you are irritated by this, you know, you do have options. People are bandying Nutanix. Uh, there's IBM uh, OpenShift, which to me seems like essentially trading like for, like, at least in terms of business model, so I don't know about <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, and I'm hearing rumblings of people checking out Proxmox. That's an open-source hypervisor offering. It's built around KVM. There is an enterprise version with support options, so if you are looking, there are alternatives out there, mm-hmm. um, but you're gonna have to do a little homework. So one final thing, uh, Broadcom's also
1: ending the ESXI free edition that people were using at home to do labbing, labbing. and some uh-huh. training. Um, it, I mean, honestly, it is hard to conceive that this is expensive to maintain or represents a threat to their core business. But hey, there you go. Um, it is the latest fashion, though, for to cut out these free training options or these free things to your user base. VMware has grown; it doesn't need grassroots support going forward. It doesn't care about you going forward. <sighs> right that the days of vmware growing and reaching to people and bringing them on board because it's a new thing that's done and previous community efforts like vmugs are now are not needed now that vmware has won. right if you want to get inside the game you have to find a way to jump the fence to get inside so if you want to become a vmware engineer and vmware engineers are going to be working in the biggest companies that pay the biggest amounts of money if you want to enter into that market, you're going to have to find some way to jump the fence and and get those skills. You're not going to be able to do it on the cheap at home with some old hardware and free licenses until you get a job and and get through. So yeah. And we've seen that across the board. So that's all of the IT vendors are, are downing their community efforts around training and education. You're seeing them defunded and in some cases just being wiped. But I think Broadcom is going to wipe this completely here. I think the whole VMUG thing will will eventually end. And then they'll take a look at it and decide whether they need to restart with a
0: different focus. On
1: we'll see, we'll see.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I think we can probably welcome VMware into the legacy club of of IT businesses. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a going concern, very profitable. Don't expect a lot of innovation or change.
1: No, well, I think there's still plenty now. of progression in the cloud in being an on-prem cloud. you have got the storage, they've got the networking. How do we bring it together to do orchestrate it so that you you end up with a AWS like or an Azure like experience. That's where it has to happen. But the fundamentals, I think, are all in place. Yeah.
0: Uh, Just three more stories before we wrap. First, Google Cloud is dropping all network data transfer fees for customers globally that want to switch to another public cloud provider or go on-prem. Typically, customers who want to move to clouds uh, would have to be assessed. They'd be assessed a fee based on the amount of data they were moving out. Uh, Free data transfer is only available to customers with a premium tier network service tier. uh, And partial exits aren't an option. If you want the free data transfer, you have to terminate your Google account. Uh, Reuters is reporting that British, British regulators have been looking at these fees, not just for Google Cloud, but all the public cloud providers. And in 2023, a British body called Ofcom asked the British Competition and Markets Authority to investigate potentially anti-competitive practices of public cloud companies. One of those practices is charging exit fees. So it looks to me like Google is just getting ahead of what it anticipates may be a forthcoming UK requirement to ditch these fees. And they're just like, all right, we'll just do do it now. We're not going to (laughs) wait.
1: How to half ass something when a whole thing wouldn't is not really politically acceptable, I and mean, because they don't want to give away free data transfer, so they're making it as hard as possible to get the free data transfer because you're quitting Google, right? Because right. Now there, you, there can in, in the, <laughs> yeah. you can stand up in front of around it. you could stand up in front of the politicians and say, "Well, if they want to go, we'll make it free for them to leave," right? But yes. you can't half leave, or as you say, right? It's, yeah, with the asterisk.
0: Yeah, yeah you have to if tell you're on Google here. Yeah. <laughs> you have to fill out some paperwork. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah,
1: like uh, okay, like almost, but not quite. No, right. no donut for you. It's like how to make sure that this is as difficult as possible to invoke, right? So,
0: right. Remember, yes, all it's clouds not an are proprietary. Process.
1: All clouds are proprietary. They're locked in. You can't get out. they are, you know, the Hotel California of of technology. Um, yeah, the fact that you can open the door for free doesn't necessarily mean you're going to walk through it.
0: Right. There are requirements still if you if you want this free option. So <laughs> yeah. read the fine print if you're thinking about this. Yeah. Uh, but I also wonder if this is going to, if, you know, this investigation in the UK moves forward, if we'll see similar moves from the other big of public cloud providers, they just may wait until they are told to do it as opposed oh. to Google just uh, diving in. Mm-hmm. Uh, analyst firm Gartner is forecasting that worldwide IT spending in 2024 will reach $5 trillion. That's a 6.8% increase over 2023. Uh, unlike every tech vendor on the planet, however, Gartner says generative AI is not going to impact IT spending significantly, which <laughs> I kind of like that counter countertrend because <laughs> if you talk to every tech vendor out there, they're all they talk about is AI now.
1: Yeah, this, this is really interesting because Gartner is actually predicting growth in one part, and they're saying that the growth is actually going to be due to... Um, AI and that AI is absolutely a boom market, but then they say in another part that it actually isn't going to affect IT spending. So I'm a little bit confused about this one, uh, but what they're actually saying is IT services is going to continue to see an increase of in growth. So I guess if you take the view that AI is a part of IT spending as a service, because you're using it as a SaaS, does that work? I
0: don't know. I guess, yeah. Or- it, it's, it, it's not a full report. We're just getting the, the presses that mm. uh, Gartner makes available for free. So uh, there's probably details we're missing if we had access to the whole thing. But uh I thought the top line numbers, in fact, were interesting. $5 trillion, six point uh, six point eight percent yep. increase. Uh, yeah, I guess that's a good forecast for IT spending.
1: Yeah, well, IT spending has been on a very slow growth. So in 2023, it was 3.3%, according to Gartner and in 2022 it was only a 0.3 increase so then they say that it's largely due to change fatigue amongst cios uh they th- but what they're predicting here is that momentum will regain in 2024 with an overall it spending increase here's my prediction Drew it spending is flat and ai is worth about 6.8% however you look at it one
0: way or the other does that make sense <laughs> so, i guess so yes yeah <laughs> Yeah, we shall see. All right, our last story for the day. Uh, semiconductor manufacturer TSMC announced earnings for its fourth fiscal quarter, 2023. The company brought in $625 billion New Taiwan dollars in quarterly revenue. That converts to about $19 billion U.S. Uh, that number is down 1.5% over last year this time. Net income is also down almost 20% compared to Q4 last year. However, the company did beat market expectations for its Q4 and is touting new growth opportunities for the coming year, driven by... Dun, 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 demand for AI. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. AI, um, the demand for AI is key to TSMC
1: because AI chipsets are so power hungry. So that is obviously GPUs and so forth, the AI hardware. To counteract that, they're moving those chips onto the very most advanced uh, processes that they have. So N N3, three, N three E, and N two, which is the three nanometer, three nanometer extended, and two nanometer, because the smaller the, the smaller the the nominal, you know production size, the less power that they consume. And so you can put more transistors on for the same power level, et cetera, et cetera. Talked about that plenty. But what they're saying here is that they are successfully getting into mass production around N3. They're ramping up to the point where it's already at 6% of their revenues. And they've got a lot of demand for the N3, obviously because of the power saving and around AI chipsets, which are huge. So that's good news for TSMC. They're seeing structural demand for N2, which is the next generation. That's still some Months, years away, um, because the deployment of that equipment only started, I think, in the early last year, and it takes like 18 yeah. they said months. they
0: promised to start mass production on two nanometer silicon in 2025. Yeah, so, it yeah, takes yeah, a year or two to away. get
1: these machines tuned up. <laughs> yep. Can you imagine that? But you know, when you're tuning, aiming to you know print something at two nanometers, uh, fair enough. <laughs> it's a tough problem. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to tr- do that, you know, at, at trillions at of items at scale. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what they also pointed out is that uh, their specialty tech strategies, mature nodes, that is greater than 7 nanometers, uh, accounts for 20% of revenue, and their strategy is to create high-yield specialized capacity rather than nominal capacity, therefore they can maintain. So one of the things that TSMC has been doing is the older uh, uh, die sizes around 7 nanometers and above continue to make good high profit. So because so once you've built that machinery and it's working and you've got the process firing, you can reduce the cost. Charge the same, but reduce the cost, and you get more and more margin out of those. So the mature nodes, mm-hmm. but then only 20% of revenue, I thought it might have been a lot larger, but maybe not. Um, the reason that we follow all of this is the TSMC, of course, is the producer of just about everybody's silicon, aside from Intel, uh, Samsung, and a couple of others. And uh, most of the legacy silicon is manufactured in China uh, and the Philippines, and quite a bit is manufactured in Japan as well. Um, but watching what they're doing is a signal of how the industry is going. So I think what do you want to summarize it as all guns blazing at TSMC within normal limits how's that said
0: yeah I think so they you know they did say revenue was down uh, for this quarter but they're forecasting I think it's good growth in 2024 although uh, they are saying um, that there may be smartphone seasonality which will affect the revenue but I think In the areas we're interested in, um, it looks like TMC is going to have a decent 2024. And that's a signal for
1: everybody in IT, you know, home, consumer, (laughs) you know, wherever you want to cloud, whatever, TSMC is reporting in its fourth quarter and saying it's on track. So that's a good sign that IT is going to be flat for the year. It'll do okay. Yeah.
0: All right. That wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes podcast. We're talking with Palo Alto Networks about their new twist on app acceleration. It's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk about accelerating dynamic content to improve application performance and the user experience with the increase of remote and hybrid workers and more applications being delivered from the cloud that can complicate IT's efforts to measure and improve application performance. So today's sponsor, Palo Alto Networks, is going to share its approach to accelerating dynamic content to enable high performance applications, which leads to better user experience. Our guest from Palo Alto Networks is Subu Varadarajan. He is Senior Director of Product Management. Uh, Subu, welcome to the podcast. And can we briefly discuss the trends that you see affecting a company's ability to get these high performing apps delivered?
2: Of course, specifically talking about dynamic content. Well, let me give you a quick background. Say, when you log on to Amazon.com or you go and log on to, say, Salesforce.com, the way you log in and what content you get is a function of who you are, what role you play in the organization. And, uh, you know, what are the content that you have, which is very specific to you and your organization. Mm-hmm. What we mean by dynamic content is mm-hmm. if Greg logs in, he's going to get content that's specific to Greg. And when you log in, Drew, you're going to get content that's specific to you, which means traditional approaches like caching, which is which is if the content does not change, the same content can be delivered for a lot of users. We call them caching or static content. And industry was responding by caching them. But the moment the content became dynamic, then the challenge became, how do you even predict what somebody is going to do? How do you going to accelerate it? So the industry was still struggling to see if caching can be retrofitted. And uh, the challenge was now 90% of the latency was happening because of dynamic content. So you have identified a problem
0: where typical things like WAN acceleration, TCP optimization aren't necessarily going to help because we're dealing not with static content that can be shared and, and pushed out and and stage places. It's essentially content that is being created in real time. But how can
2: you actually accelerate that then? That That's a great question. I'm going to give you a little bit of a story about, like, I believe that all uh, smart people, you know, if you actually put them in a room, they would arrive at a solution in the close proximity to each other. For us, what happened was my experience in the past was I worked in Akamai, which is, I would say, uh, a very uh, important content delivery network company. Sure, tech knows a thing or two about caching <laughs> and <laughs> and how to push exabytes of traffic. Right from then on, I joined a company called Shape Security. I was very early at the company. Worked with some of the smartest people on the planet, and I learned how hackers use this thing called a botnet to launch attacks. So if you've mm-hmm. heard of botnet from dark web, you can lease a botnet CDN and you can launch attacks against anyone that you want, right? (laughs) And basically, myself and my co-founders, Kumar and Roy, we were asking this question, if the bad guys have this powerful tool called a botnet, do we have something similar for good guys, right? If you will, like a white hat botnet, if you will, right? And we could not find one. So we thought, can we create something that will add value to the, to the tech community by creating the world's first white hat botnet. Now the reason is it's tied to you at the very question you asked, if dynamic content cannot be cached, how are you guys going to predict what content to fetch and what content you should not fetch, right? Uh And the way I I would map it to would be, say, for example, it's uh, time to leave work to your home and you enter your home address and you hit Google Maps. What Google Maps typically do is they would say that, hey, these portions of the city are congested and they will try to route you around it. And since we are all from the networking community, we've also been using that in our internet world, right? Where we, we used to call that path selection or we used to call that congestion avoidance algorithms. And I'm Routing sure- Routing for dollars. You want
1: the shortest path to the destination. Exactly. Right, so if it's in the cache, go to the cache. If it's not in the cache, go to the source or go to a different cache potentially.
2: Right, Greg. So what we did, was, hey, if there is a way to not go to the source, but get the source to you, right? So the way we can do that is we leveraged our bots. So in our world, Greg, when you log on to salesforce.com, we spawn a bot. I'm going to label the bot Greg Bot, right? Mm. It's not going to track you, but it has a one-to-one session mapping with your browser. When Drew logs on, we will spawn a Drew bot. These bots have allegiance to you, the user, have zero allegiance to Paul Alto Network, zero allegiance to the app, but it only cares about how do I enhance the experience for my user. So the idea
1: there is that the user does the same thing twice?
2: User, not, always, not twice all the time. Mm. It's basically what we do is going back to my Google Maps example, instead mm. of focusing on the path that takes most time, Greg, I'm focusing on what APIs are taking the most time and what APIs are heavily leveraged by users. Now, once you are armed with this, we call this information graph app graph. And what we have found is the app graph for Salesforce.com would be very different from that of Conquer or Ariba from SAP, right? These are amazing applications that enterprises use throughout, but they also give a very powerful signal, which is how real users are interacting with these applications. So when our bot gets loaded, going back to my Greg bot example, when if you are interacting with salesforce.com, we would spawn the app graph for salesforce.com into Greg bot's context. So right. what what would then do is, hey, Greg is now coming to homepage. He's going to click on dashboard. Most likely he's going to click on this based on the heat map that millions of other Salesforce users are using.
1: It's almost like you're building a personalized cache just for each user.
2: Very, very true.
1: Right. So I'm going to Salesforce. I'm going to, and you create a context inside of the caching infrastructure for me. And I, you know I'm on this site and you could start to use, well, I assume that AI is a part of this in the future, if not now. You can say if he's on Salesforce or Azure or whatever, you know, Microsoft Office, these are the things that, that user context is going to do so we can cache them per user rather than saying You know, in the old days, it was like there was a newspaper and we would cache the whole of the newspaper because 10,000 people in the company would read it at lunchtime type of thing.
2: Well, wonderful example, Greg, right? (laughs) So I I would just not use the word caching Mm. for the following reason. The way I think about the word caching is you leverage disk, right? You store content in the disk ahead of time Mm -hmm. and you make it faster. What I think of, uh, and you know, if if you had to throw me a rope, the way I kind of like to map this is static content, like the newspaper example, in the Mm computer world, we call them, those content were, you know, it got computed in the past, right? And the same content can now be consumed in the present by millions of users. That means you can store them in the disk and you can just take it from the disk and deliver to your users, yeah? yeah? For dynamic content, you got to do the opposite, which is you have to compute the future. And the way you compute the future is by leveraging bot technology. So what our bots do is they understand, hey, this is how users would typically interact with Salesforce.com. Yeah. So they're now computing the future so that when real Greg comes and clicks on something, your hmm. bot has already got the content. So we are leveraging compute and not disk.
0: Right. Okay. And th- the point is that you're sort of anticipating, you know, maybe which set of APIs or which services are most likely to be called by Greg, yeah. i.e. Greg bot, and
2: okay, you'll exactly. get to those as fast as you can. That's correct. And what right. we do is, because we are now decoupling the time it takes for the cloud to prepare the content, right? These are dynamic content, which means today the entire world is what I call reactive which means you, once the user starts to click on something, then it starts the domino effect, right? Then the, it goes to the CDN. From the CDN, it checks the caching and infrastructure. It's not, then you find the fastest way to the mothership where the apps are running. Then the apps now starts running. So think of this like a relay race. Once you click hmm. on it, everybody runs, except apps are getting more complex, right? They're getting personalized. We are, we are using large data set. To get using using
1: single page applications or PWA, yeah. you know, print yeah. when accessed, all that sort. Like the whole context of rendering a web page is in a state of flux. There's so many front ends now, so much like React and all of yeah. the frameworks that we're using in JavaScript. You can't cache objects. You have to come up with a different way of of accelerating app, accelerating the service, not accelerating the objects.
2: Exactly right. And so what we realized was, what if we decouple the cloud latency and think of that as whenever uh, the client app is requesting for something, if you already have the context, our bot would now deliver that instantly because now through Palo Alto, we got the content. We also scrutinize the content for security because we know Palo Alto is the security uh, giant in the world, mm. one of the best security companies. And with that, now we are bringing performance. And what I found to be fascinating was, while we were a startup, we were focused on e-commerce and streaming and media delivery applications. And when we came to enterprise application, it was very interesting to see how the top CAOs are combating security versus performance, right? You Mm -hmm. have security at the same time with the modern world, Uh, you know, I was talking to our chief product officer and and he said something that was very interesting. He said something like, hey, um, if you think about uh, how we had MPLS technology, right? Then we had SD-WAN technology. All these are amazing ways that as a technology, we are trying to figure out how to deliver the best experience. And now with Zykeda, you guys are now trying to figure out how do you customize the experience for every single user, yeah, by using machine learning, by using large data set, it strikes me that this is already very similar to what Palo
1: Alto is doing with Prisma, because each user use accesses the Prisma SASSI, like in SASSI, they access yeah. content scanning, logging, threat detection, threat analysis, you know, permission brokering, and all um, digital experience monitoring, all those things, mm-hmm. and. What you're adding here is the next thing, which is to say, can we? Accept, we're already doing all of this processing um, per user in a very real sort of way, but now you're actually adding this concept of can we accelerate the application more?
2: Exactly, Greg. Right. Right. I, the way the way I, I think the way you mapped it was actually wonderful. Yeah. Our users today, you, when they use Prisma Access, they have the peace of mind that you get protection from zero-day threats. You, you actually get uh, production from data leaks and all the stuff, right? We are in the business right, yeah. of making sure you get the secure access to all applications, mm-hmm. private or public. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, if you are a fortune finder, if you are a G2K company, you have a distributed workforce, which means 90% of your workforce is outside your headquarters. And all of them are now accessing applications from environments that might not have enterprise-grade networking. Like you may be traveling and you may mm. be accessing your app from airport. All of us have been there where we can say that it's less than ideal conditions, right? Or Starbucks or your, your home where it might not have the same grade experience as your workplace. What? We figured out was mm. if we can accelerate the dynamic content and we can also understand how you are connecting to us. Are you having packet loss problems? Are you having some connectivity issues? And yeah. figure that out and customize the delivery for you, then you're gonna have best end-to-end experience. So does this mean the product is being delivered
0: uh, as part of sort of the ADEM, the digital experience management or monitoring suite? Is there an agent involved? It sounds
2: like it's also incorporating Sassy. Can you tell me about all the pieces to, to get this capability? Absolutely, true. So the way this technology works is it's a turnkey solution, it's going to be an add-on on top of Prisma Access. So for all customers who are already having Prisma Access, they can now get faster than direct internet experience. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is say you connect to Salesforce.com with no security and say it takes five it takes a 20 seconds to render a page. Now mm-hmm. with us, we are now able to get the same page with full security enabled, but at five up to five times faster than the direct internet experience, right?
1: Now this isn't way an acceleration. You aren't doing header compression or content inspection. You're not cracking the SSL. This is literally, to me, it sounds almost like there's a strong emphasis on predictive here. You can predict where the user's going next
2: so you can preload something. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. So we are doing the TLS uh, encryption yeah. when it comes to app acceleration and we yeah. are predicting. I, the, I think that's the important point here is yeah. we are trying to pre-compute the content on behalf of the user based on what is relevant for them contextually. Then- and This those- is
1: something we couldn't do five years ago or 10 years ago because mm-hmm. we didn't have the compute, we didn't have the software, we weren't able to profile. This is like the, this is where deep learning, machine learning, artificial intelligence has enabled this kind of ability to be able to do per user predictive analysis and say, oh, I can see this person has this profile, they're using this site. Therefore, I know something about what they're going to do next and I can preload or predictively
2: do something to accelerate the traffic. That's, that's exactly right. I think any new technology that comes into uh, our world, I look at that as two uh, phases, right? Phase one is where we call this a playful toy, where we play with them, we enjoy yeah. them but then are they enterprise ready? And what I mean by enterprise ready is, can it be dependable, can it be mission, can it be applied for mission critical applications? And I think we are reaching an inflection point now where we can now rely on these technologies in a very predictive way. And we can still deliver value uh, in a way that that's 10X better than the past in a consistent manner, right, Greg? So I think that's the inflection point that enabled us to now use these technologies in real time
1: what I want to ask is uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm here listening to this now, if I'm an existing Palo Alto Networks customer, is this just an add-on to my existing Palo products? Like, do I go to Prisma, add this, and then go to my Palo devices and start to enable the features? Is it that simple or is there something extra?
2: Thanks for actually bringing that point out. This is just an uh, add-on. So yeah. if you're existing Prisma Access customer, it's just a turnkey solution for you and to tie it to the Drew's question in the past, uh, you don't need uh, Adam for this. It's basically if you have Prisma access, you can enable this, right? Okay. But when you have Adam, Drew, what we are now doing is we are also taking all the real time. Uh, we call them RUM, Real User Metrics, mm-hmm. and, that and we enrich Adam. So now, if you are an IT person, you get I would say two point of view. One, even when there is no problem, we are now giving you an accurate depiction of how real user experience is getting impacted based on the traffic they are consuming, not synthetic test, but precisely based on what they are consuming and what are the disturbances that they are getting subjected to. Second, we also give him another lens that says, if someone has a problem, is the problem occurring in the cloud or is the problem occurring when they are connecting in the last mile, like in their uh, Wi-Fi mile, if you will, in the client mile having yep. a bad Wi-Fi blah 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 right So with this we find that we can reduce their MTT or mean time to resolution metric significantly because there is no guesswork. If someone calls the IT person now the IT person can clearly say, hey, you had these connectivity issues and this is the reason you had this bad experience. Then we also go to the third step and say, by the way, this 95% of the time, we figured out that these were the reasons you were having the issues and we also managed it for you. So, which means users did not even know that they had a bad experience, but the IT guy knows how many such bad tickets right. they avoided yeah. using acceleration. Yeah,
1: because you're so deep into the application flow and you're seeing the interactions go backwards and forwards, you can start to debug whether it's the server side or the client side. You can even predict whether it's the network, you know, because you're you're that deep into the flow. Exactly. Now just something that struck me here, Subu, is this sounds like there is definitely a capability to embed this inside of applications. This is something that's come on and off over the years where people who did WAN acceleration of various different types, you can actually take this and then embed it inside of the apps. I've seen it done in cruise ships, particularly where there was very long latency, you know, long transmission times. Is there something, is that a direction you could think about heading in?
2: That's a uh, very contextual question, Greg. Uh, yeah. We are uh, definitely thinking along those lines, and we are getting our early conversations have been very, very good so far. Mm. Uh, I'm sure we are going to share some exciting updates on that line, maybe in the next <laughs> review. Uh, but that is, you know, strong. It's system. obvious.
1: It's obvious. So once you've got an acceleration capability like this, you should embed it in the app, and so it always seems that's always something that's on the table. I think exactly. Well, with that note, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so very much to Palo Alto Networks for sponsoring today. And Subi, thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us. It's uh, This product is all his fault. So if you've got any questions and you want to find out more about it, head on over to paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash access. Ask him about the product and see if it, and as I said, it we did ask the question. It's just a matter of if you're already a Palo customer using Prisma, it's just a case of lighting up the capabilities and starting to do some testing to see if that works for you. And as always, you can find this and many more fine-free technical podcasts over on our community website at packetpushes.net. Please like us on social media. Tell your friends. It's a huge help to us. And um, once again, thanks to Palo for being a sponsor. Without them, the whole network would not be possible. And last but never ever least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.